out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Delamitri, because I recently spoke to Justin Curry to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. They have a new album that has just come out very recently that we talk about. Also, they've got dates in Europe and also Australia for next year. Plus, they had been in America earlier doing some live shows. So after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was actually we started talking about the American dates and I asked how they they had been. And this was Justin's reply. Justin, it's over to you. Well, we were really apprehensive about it because uh, some of the some of the ticket sales were really sluggish because America was just kind of coming out of Omicron. Yes. And um, we also, none of us had lived on a tour bus since the mid-90s. <laughs> and we, look, we did a lot of tour bus living in the, between 1997, a lot. Yes. Uh, and we thought, is it water off a duck's back or are we going to be utterly traumatised at the lack of privacy and living at close quarters? And Anyway, it was fine. Um, I mean, Chris, our guitar player, had a bit of trouble sleeping um, but other than that, we were, we were all fine. The only problem was uh, about half the band got some norovirus. Right. <laughs> so there was quite a lot of running off, running off stage and running back on again. Yes. But cause... actually, it, it was it was brilliant fun. And by the time we got there, all the tickets had sold, so all the rooms were full, so that was really gratifying. Yes. And, um, yeah, we loved it. Well, it was interesting because I've just been watching this um, film on Amazon Prime, What Drives Us, which is uh, the David Kroll film about life on a bus. On the, in the, right. Well, starting in the van and then going, if you're really yeah. lucky, to get a bus. And then one yeah. of the members of No Doubt said, and then one day you have a bus with a toilet. Now that's a game changer. Um, so, yes, <laughs> that was that was it. I, and I thought, of course, you know, because there was a lot of talk about how you pack all this instrument, all the instruments and gear and five members into one little van. And, um, yes, you must have had a lot of that in, well, you said the 90s, but also the uh, very early years when, you know, you, you're looking at pennies rather than pounds. So you must have, um, you must be able to relate to those kind of great stories of um, life Absolutely. in the van. I mean, we, we did the classic US tour in 86, 12 weeks in uh, an Econoline van with four rows of seats. And uh, we, we slept in the van as well. So I slept in the floor and Brian and Gitarpa slept in the seats above me and somebody else slept in the floor, floor behind that. Uh, yeah, that was, um, you know, that's the kind of thing you can only do in your late teens and early 20s. I could not do that now. Yes, I remember talking to um, Fish, you know, from Marillion days kind of recently and he's saying that they were doing this European 30 dates 30 days but he had to have a good bed because he's too tall and he has a bad you know a dodgy back and it was like yeah I can't I can't get my back wrecked on the first couple of nights because you know I won't be able to continue so yes you know there is those those moments and also horrendous diets as well which is which goes with it as well so um yeah yeah I mean that's that's got a bit better um, in the last sort of 20 years. But yeah, in the 80s, it was almost impossible to find anything resembling food that wasn't just fish and chips or something. Uh, and white the same white bread and jam. Yeah, there was an awful lot of, I remember in, on European tours, there was an awful lot of cold meats and hard rolls, and that was, and you were eating that for 
two weeks or something. Yes, so not good. But look, you've got a new, I know, the life of the van. I love those stories, by the way. I think they're fantastic. And um, like you said, you can only with it, you can only do it with a young body and constitution. Yeah, right? absolutely. And um, yes, but it's often the thing that often, you know, breaks bands. But yes, you've got a new album that came out last year, which is absolutely fantastic on Cooking Vinyl, which is um, one of those everybody loves Cooking Vinyl records. I remember when they first started with uh, Michelle Shocked uh, campfire songs and it, they're still going strong, but they've kind of got a fantastic roster. So you've had quite a big break, haven't you, from your last album, you know, to this one. Yeah. Um, yes. What was it like kind of? thinking, actually, we're going to write some... We're not only going to write, but we're going to record and release a new album. Well, I was slightly, slightly daunted by the idea. Ian Harvey, the guitar player, and Delamitri, was he was quite keen to do another, another album. And I think by 2017, he was talking about it. Um, and I was really sceptical about it, because I, I, I didn't want to... I didn't want to sort of mar the catalogue of those albums that we made in the 90s which are are not which are incredibly flawed records in in all sorts of ways but a lot of money was spent on them and a lot of time was taken in recording and arranging them and they are of their time and I'm still quite proud of them and I didn't want to make a record that was out something out of time that was going to um there was just going to be a black mark on the on the catalogue yes. so but then we then we decided, right, we're going to make an album that sounds like us. So what do we sound like? Okay, well, melodic, two guitars, bass and drums. Um, so that gave me a, a format to write songs for, and then I, I, I found it relatively easy to write songs for that. Because uh, also, we knew who the musicians were going to be early. It wasn't like we, we wrote a bunch of stuff and then thought oh, who's going to play on this? We decided we were going to use the guys that played in 2014, 2018 to play in the album. Right. And so that, that, made, that made it easier writing because it meant right, I knew that Chris could bring a certain flavour to this sort of a song, so uh, it just made it a lot easier. Yes, because for me, one of the outstanding songs on it is All Hell, Blind Love, which is uh -huh. a gorgeous song and just beautiful instrumentation. I mean, where, you know, was... On, on the sort of chronological kind of time span of writing or putting this together, where did certain songs start to happen? You know, which ones were the kind of the first ones and which ones were kind of when you started getting on the flow? Because I just, you know, because there's a few which is, is like the one that I just mentioned and also Musicians and Beer, which is quite a different song yeah. as well, isn't there? Um, and then there's some slightly sort of melancholic songs and some sort of reflective songs. So I just kind of wondered which ones started to come together that gave you that kind of, kind of momentum to keep going. Well, the first... The first thing that we arranged um, of the new songs was You Can't Go Back, which uh, the, the arrangement took minutes to put together. Um, and so we played that on the 2018 tour. And then the last thing that we wrote before we, we decided we'd written enough was um, It's Feelings. Uh, so actually the co-writes were the last thing. I, I, I left the co-writes to the end because I wanted to write as much... Uh, as many songs on my own as I could to feel that that to feel secure before I, I started doing the chorus with uh, with Ian and then we wrote like I think about eight or ten songs at the, at the end of the at the end of the project I think yes. that one but at, the, at the end of that period 
Um, so yes, the, the, the songs that Ian and I wrote together were the last things, and, and they they were the sort of gel that made it feel like we'd written a Delamitri album. Yes, and so with with the with my standout song, "Or Hell, Blind Love," with the lyrics, you know, yep. is this a revival, just the last breath at the end of the regime? Is this kind of a, a reflection on the band and yourselves, and and sort of? Yeah, it's, a pun, it's just a pun on somebody's wedding anniversary, uh, and that's a pun on us as a pun, and a pun on Ian and, and, and my relationship, which has been. You know, it's been up and down over the years, you know, uh, because we're we're very close and we're we're quite competitive. Yeah. Um, so that you know, it's it's very like a marriage. So I, I just I, I like the idea of of punning, and I, I also I kind of uh, yeah, I like the idea it could also be about the relationship between us and the audience. Yes, which is yeah, but instrument. I think musically it's beautiful. You know, it's just got a really nice kind of quality to it, which is quite interesting. So that because the follow the next song, musicians and beer, are is is quite a sort of um, yes, it features quite a, a kind of um, quite a anger to it or bitterness on, and yeah. suddenly <laughs> sort of quite quite like oh this is interesting that hasn't sort of gone the way I expected the the kind of vibe of the album so what yeah. what was the process of writing musicians and beer um well fun enough I wrote that on the piano uh, which is quite strange because it's a, a total kind of electric guitar arrangement on the record um yeah I mean it's an angry song I, I, I really enjoy singing it live because I can get a bit of spite out um, uh, and also, it, it, you know, it's, it's served well as a kind of opener for us because it's, you know, there's a song about saying your life is uh, is, is deprived if you don't if you don't have musicians and beer in it. <laughs> and some people don't. Some some people don't believe in it either, and uh, they're uh, they're denying themselves one of the essential pleasures of existence. Yes, yes. And when did um, cooking vinyl enter the kind of frame? Did they? Was that was that a relationship that had um, had been sort of going on a little bit before that? You know, in you know, dialogue. Uh, we we didn't we hadn't signed to cooking vinyl when we were recording the album, but we 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 kind of agreed terms or something. You know, and I, I don't know what the phrase would be. Um, so we actually signed the contract after we finished the. The records, but they were—they weren't involved, but they—they they, they were keeping an eye on what we were doing. But you know, we paid for the album ourselves, so that the, the record companies didn't have any particular input at that point. Yeah, um, which is, you know, ideal really. I mean, it's cooking vinyl are not a traditional record label in that sense. You know, they don't give you advances and then put you under an enormous pressure to make pop songs. Um, so, uh, yeah, and I—I I, I nearly. Signed one of my solo albums to King Vinyl, and it was just pipped by one person's decision at the time, which I was quite crestfallen about. So I was really over the moon that, that, that they were up for doing this. Yes, well, they come with quite. Um, I suppose people have come to respect the label for what it's you know stands for and the sort of the basic roster yeah. that they've got at the moment, which is quite good. Because over the years, you've had an amazing amount of different producers for the, yeah. the, your different albums, and. Um, yeah, extraordinary. And with your, there was one that you did, which was the one in um, 
2002, actually the one before, Can You Do Me Good, which, which also features the amazing Kevin Bacon, who was in a, me a member of the Comsat Angels. Comsat Angels. Yes, we loved them, didn't we, in the 80s. What was that experience uh, like of, um, you know, because, you, you know, before that you had two Johns, didn't you, or Jones? Two and, Jones. Um, so, yeah, you, and then, yeah, you've just had some amazing kind of name producers whose work, has that, does that often influence the kind of, the writing and recording process, and you know, for you, it doesn't. It doesn't influence the writing process at all. Hugh Jones, who, who was the first series producer we worked with, um, rearranged a lot of our songs structurally, um, so he would chop things up, and and so he made he made our our early somewhat wondery songs, you know, kind of formless songs. He gave them structure, so things would suddenly become a chorus. And, oh, right, that's a chorus. Um, but after we'd sort of learned all those lessons, we were, yeah, we didn't really need stuff to be rearranged. We worked with Gil Norton for a bit, and he, he rearranged a couple of things. Yes. Um, I mean, he, he completely rearranged Always the Last to Know, which probably is what led it to being a hit. Um, but on the whole, we worked with producer engineers, so we would come in with fully formed songs and arrangements, and then it would just be a case of recording the performances. Um, but we always liked we always liked there to be a producer in the room that we could defer to. Yes. Self-producing is a tricky thing because you tend, in order to avoid an argument, you tend to let each other off with, with lesser performances because you don't want to antagonise people you're very close to. Whereas where there's a producer there... They can they can call the shots. Do that again. You can do it better. Or the, you know that you you sang flat there. You know it's it's much harder for a guitar player to tell a singer you're singing flat than for a producer. But one of the advantages of being on a big label like A M was, you know, you could you could hire some incredibly capable, talented people. So we ended up coming out of that process knowing a lot about the recording process and knowing a lot about equipment and. Uh, so that was a that was actually a really useful education for uh, ending up in the in the zeros when all the money had emptied out of the recording industry, yes. and you, in order to make an album, you had to do it yourself. You know, you couldn't you couldn't afford to hire a producer and a, a recording studio. In fact, most of the recording studios shut. So um, uh, that, that was incredibly useful learning all that all that stuff. Yes, well, I think that happened on the uh, third Motorhead album. I think they decided they were losing the plot a bit. This was the classic lineup, and they got, I think they said to Fast Eddie, the guitarist, you know, you can produce it. And, you know, he, he couldn't just go from being one third of the band to being that role of producer. And it was a traumatic experience. And then they broke up. Well, you know, he got thrown out the band. So I think, I think you need, I think you need somebody else to control the egos and to, you know, yeah, definitely. Be be the sort of you know everyone can hate that person, but as long as they're not a member of the band, that that kind of probably helps, doesn't it, really? Because you're yeah. you've got a um, kind of going to the that period of the eighties. You're you've got a cousin, haven't you, Momus, the famous Momus? Did yeah. he? Because um, he was you know such a cult star, and people like Lawrence from Felt. Did he have um, much kind of influence on your sort of early creative period? No, I mean we we weren't terribly close growing up. Uh, I mean, I, I'm a huge admirer of Nick's and, and I regard him as something of a genius. Uh, and he was always, you know, he was always a, a kind of a figure that you looked up to because I was quite a bit younger than him and because he, was, he had this supreme intellect and he was very curious about everything. Um, 
but not musically, no, because um, I didn't really, I didn't even know he was in a band until after we'd made our first record. He was in a band called Happy Families that were very sort of Joseph K influenced. Yes. Uh, so I heard that kind of after the fact. But then he heard our first Christmas album and he sent me a letter saying, wow, you know, that's a really interesting, interesting record. And here's my record. So he sent me his first album, Circus Maximus, which is so, it's a polar opposite from the stuff he was doing with Happy Families. Um, you know, it's no longer rock music. It's kind of baroque, Jacques Brel. It's, um, it's TV soundtracks. It's just a, you know, a, a quite an extraordinary record for its time, you know, made half on, a, on an emulator and, and a, a nylon-strung guitar. Full of incredibly funny highly um, academic lyrics, which, I mean, <laughs> no, nobody's really done before. No. Uh, or, or, or certainly got away with it with such a kind of wry take on things. So, yeah, what, but I wouldn't say that was... I can't think that was ever an influence on me because what he does is so far left field and he's not he's not coming anymore. He's not coming to the mainstream. He stayed out, right out there. As he said to me once, what I've learned to do is, is maximise my marginality. <laughs> uh, and so uh, and we kind of did the opposite. We moved away from the left field because we started writing pop songs. So uh, we moved into the mainstream. And we've never been particularly comfortable in the mainstream, but the music sounds mainstream, so that's kind of where we belong. We, you know, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't make much sense in the left field because we're not, we're not that original. No, um, ish. So... So yeah, that's that's kind of where we've ended up. And I think Nick was kind of horrified when Delamitri moved out of that alternative indie world into the sort of mainstream, mellifluous Radio Two tones of of, uh, of some of the stuff on, on Waking Hours. I guess yeah, it's, I think it's, he was horrified, <laughs> and he's every right to be. Because <laughs> <laughs> you went from you know having you know on the the sort of. You know, from from Glasgow, you know, on a very small Indian independent label, to you know a John Peel session in '84. So you know, for me, the '80s was this kind of, you know, there was obviously the post punk period. Then there was new romantic yeah. and new psych psychedelia. Was it new psych? Or psych yeah, something like you know the new Paisley. That's the word, and a bit of goth. And then '83 onwards for five years was the Smiths, and there was this kind of indie sound. So you must have been you were right there on that indie cusp weren't you that, that we were kind of we were kind of even though we were a bit younger we were contemporaneous with the smiths um and we were i was pretty appalled when uh, their first single came out because they were do they were they were in a very similar area to where we were they were using lyrics that weren't normally used in pop songs and that's what we were doing they were they had extremely clean melodic guitar that was what we were doing they were obviously quite influenced by postcards, um, and they were better than us. And uh, that was when we kind of saw the rating on the wall and thought, right, we are definitely going to do also runs now. And so if it kind of hadn't been for the Smiths, we might have been some slightly more uh, vigorous contenders in that world. But uh, we got kind of, we also got kind of slaughtered because we, um, uh, the editor of Melody Maker stuck us on the cover of the magazine, sort of claiming that we were the best things since sliced bread before we'd put a single out. Yes. And, uh, I think that and, happened to the Soup Dragons, actually. <laughs> yeah, it might have done. Uh -huh, yeah. I mean, so yeah, we, we were perceived as being this hyped band that didn't have anything to offer, whereas 
we should have just kind of slowly crept in, uh, you know, uh, into evening evening radio, and uh, we, we could have probably done okay, you know. Yes, because did you did you find because the the sort of by the time you got your second album, this was the late eighties. I mean, they were sort of the Smiths broke up '87, which I think is a, a big moment because because there was a kind of a, a generational thing. Every five years, the yeah. next wave of 16, 18 year olds want their soundtrack, and then there's a bit of a shift in music, and ecstasy came along, and then we had the Seattle yeah. punk, the Seattle grunge scene, and then you sort of yeah. come out with this incredibly polished record on your the second album. And um, yes, I did. You know, when you yeah. were writing Waking Hours. What was what was that like for you when you were thinking, oh God, there's there's my bloody Valentine, oh my God, there's the soup dragons gone, don't disc, you know, like well, rave. We we knew that we knew there was nobody else doing what we were doing, which was, uh, and what we thought we were doing uh, was we we were kind of forging a cross between the fa- the face, Rod Stewart and the faces, and a bit of Bob Dylan and something a bit more rock, like Sin Lizzie or something. That's what we thought we were doing. I mean, it's not that's not what the record sounds like, but that's what we thought we were doing. And nobody else was trying to do that. People were still making these reverb-drenched, you know, government-issue snare drums, so the snare drums sounded like a cannon fire. People were still making these awful, trebly 80s records that were drenched in reverb. And we, what we were doing was something quite dry and intimate and uh, warm and very 70s. Sounding. Yes. Again, that's the record sounds very 80s, but at, at the time it was a hell of a lot more 70s sounding than most other things going on. So we knew that was a good thing because we were the only people doing that, and we were we thought we were doing it pretty well. So as a result of that, we we had every major record company in, in London following us around and offering us deals and taking us out for dinner and taking us to the theatre and and buttering us up and desperately trying to sign us. Uh, to the label, so um, that bidding war allowed us to select exactly the right record company for us, which which proved to be A and M, and that was exactly the right choice. Yes, and that was kind of our that was kind of our saving grace. If we'd ended up in a much more commercially less artist friendly, as they say, record company, we'd have just we'd have been toast. We'd have uh, we'd have been burnt up in the kind of eighties producer wars, and we'd have hated our record, and it would have all gone downhill. I guess you took the baton from the police, didn't you, in a way? Uh, and Squeeze, you know, uh, um, you know, Squeeze re-signed to A&M around about that time and had quite a big hit. Um, but yeah, also we were signed by a kind of legendary a and guy called Chris Briggs, uh, who really looked after us and really kind of showed us the ropes and helped us navigate the, the tricky journey between artistic instincts and commercial instincts and obviously the record company represents the commercial side and usually the band represents the, the, more, the, the some more kind of creative concerns um, and he yeah, helped us negotiate that with, with a great deal of diplomacy and subtlety yes. and that, I, that, that's what allowed us to make that record because we made that record three times before we were happy with it Yeah, when you went into the studio recording your, um, I suppose the, the, the sort of the, the um I mean, was there ever a time with those two last kind of albums, Some Other Suckers and Can You Do Me Good, yeah. was there ever a sense when you were going to record them that that might be the the closing of the chapter for the band or did it not have that sense, feeling at the time? Well, when we were making Some Other Suckers Parade, we were coming off the back of having a huge pop hit in America on Twisters Called Roll To Me. So 
we actually made someone to suck his parade in a rush because the American record company said, look, we've got to follow this up. So we wrote it in a hurry. So it's a kind of underwritten record in some ways. Uh, and sort of threw it out there and it bombed on American radio. The, the first single just bombed. Uh, partly because it was still playing role to me and also partly because it was probably too noisy for pop radio. Um, so we knew then that uh, this, is the, this is the first time we've been looking at, at levelling off and going down rather than sort of creeping upwards incrementally just in terms of, you know, in terms, in terms of record sales and radio play. So we were aware that this was the beginning of the of the dwindling. Uh, and by the time we got to Can You Do Me Good, I mean, we, we tried to get off the label because A&M by that time had been bought by successive, successively larger and larger corporations and it became a completely different beast from what it was. When we signed to A&M in 1987, it was still owned by Herb and Jerry, two musicians that started yeah. the label in the, in the 60s. And it was still run kind of for musicians. By the time we got to um, putting the greatest hits out in 98, it was owned by a company that also ran the Paris sewers. Um, and, and, you know, all, all considerations were just purely about commerce and money. There was nothing, there was no creativity involved anymore. So we tried to get off the label in 98. Uh, but they kept us on for another album, which we were very unhappy about. And then they wouldn't let us record anything because they didn't think the demos were sufficiently um, commercial enough. So we made about we made about 75, 80 demos, all of which got rejected. Uh, and then eventually we, we managed to persuade the A&R guy to, to, to give us like the, the last tranche of money. And we took it to Commissioner Gordon in New York and finished, finished the album over there. Having gone through the Beacon and Columbia experience of recording with recording digitally for the first time, or certainly recording on computer for the first time, and using like looping the drums and stuff like that, um, so we knew that that al- we knew we were going to get dropped after that album came out, and we knew that album would sink like a stone because there was no money behind it, and there was no enthusiasm for it. And the label, I mean, the label wasn't even called A&M anymore, but that point it was called Mercury, and it was a completely different different thing, you know, it was awful, it was horrible it was, you know, A&M for the first 10 years, was the, they were the most fantastic people to work with Yes, amazing, isn't it, when things like that kind of happen, how do you then when the band, did that, did you have a meeting with the, the band, or did you do a sort of Jim Morrison and just say, this is the end Well, I was our, our manager, Ian and I had a meeting uh, and I I said, well, what do we do now? We, you know, when we drop the label, we'll have like, we've got a lot less income coming in because we won't have advances on, you know, on record cycles. Um, and I imagined that we would just tour, tour smaller venues yes. and maybe sign to a biggest banquet type label and put out indie records and just keep going. Uh, and I think that was viable, but um, Ian and John just thought that would that sounded a bit depressing and they might have been right so they said that I think we should just stop and and reevaluate. but you know the idea of going out on, in much reduced circumstances is just going to be a bit grim you know and I think they were probably right because I think the audience at that point had had enough of Delamitri and they'd moved on to other things yes so um, it, was, it was I think it probably was right just to stop but as, as I kind of see that, that album Fatal Mistakes is a sort of compilation of all the things we might have done in the zeros and the tens had we kept going. Um, so I think that's why it sounds the way it does. 
Yes. Did you did you kind of pick yourself after a few years? Pick yourself up and think, right, that's it. I'm going to be a solo artist. Did that? Well, I didn't. I didn't want to be a solo artist because I always hated people in bands. You know, jumping out of the bands and trying to be solo artists. I just it just seems so egotistical to me. And also, I'm not a solo artist. I'm a I'm a band person. I've always been in a band. But Delamitsu were not called for. There was nobody was phoning us up asking us to do anything. So I was still writing a lot of songs. So um, the only thing to do really was to, was to make solo records. I wasn't going to form another band because Delamitsu is the only band I've ever been in or ever will be in. So, uh, yeah, I had to make solo records. <laughs> Which, you know, I'm really proud of the solo records. I, I, I really hate my name. I, you know, I, I desperately tried to come up with another name for the, you know, for the, for the songs to, uh, for the songs to be um, branded under, and I just couldn't find anything that was serviceable. So I ended up releasing them under my own name, which I, I still find a bit of a cringe. <laughs> Did that give you, in retrospect, a sort of certain amount of confidence, though, in your kind of ability and also taking that kind of responsibility of being suddenly, God, this is kind of now, I'm not part of a gang, I'm literally, it's only going to happen because I'm going to have to motivate myself, get it together, write the material, you know, find musicians to play with. Yeah. It's harder to motivate yourself when you don't have a band of musicians who are waiting for you to come up with stuff. Uh, if you're just doing it for yourself, it's, it's, um, I found it a much slower process. And I had, I had a higher bar in terms of the quality of the songs because the songs had to stand on their own two legs. I couldn't write a half-decent song that I knew the band would turn into a, a great record. Uh, I, I, had to, I had to write things that I could play on the piano and guitar on my own that would sound like a complete song. So that I found it much more difficult than writing for it. Uh, the right for a band. Yes. Um, and yeah, I mean, some of it was. Uh, I mean, the, the last album I made, I decided I was going to make a just solo voice and piano records, and I got halfway through it and realised it was so dull, <laughs> so <laughs> boring. I just uh, I phoned up my, my friend Mark Fugard and said, "Can you help me with this? Because I've, I've gone completely the wrong direction." And he said, "I'll be over in. I'll be over in a in a while, in a day." Yeah. Yes. Thankfully. Did, was that, you know, because it's a kind of, because I suppose my first, you know, um, artist I fell in love with, which was kind of a lucky one because it was during the glam rock period, so it could have been Gary Glitter, but it was David Bowie, thankfully, with yeah. Space Oddity. And there's that kind of period where, you know, you're in that kind of creative zeitgeist and then you have that next period for him. From, well, looking at his career, so the 80s and part of the 90s wasn't great. Do, do you sort of feel there is a sort of sense of you just got to keep persevering through those kind of period, you know, periods where not anyone's that going to be that interested in the album. They might be one day, but you as the creative yeah. artist, it's it's I like I've, I've just got to keep going. But but five, ten years time, people are going to start wanting to know where I'm, you know, kind of get in touch with me again. I don't think you think about that. I think all you're concerned with is I've got to write songs because that's what keeps me from going insane. So you write songs and then. If you're a songwriter, you want the songs to do, to do something. You don't want them just to disappear into the ether or just lie in a song sheet somewhere or lie in a demo tape. You want other people to hear them. I mean, that's the kind of function of them. You're, you're trying to communicate something to the wider world. It's not just a private uh, hobby. Um, so the songs tug you into the arena of making records and doing tours. But you're not really... 
as long as you're pleased with the songs, you're writing, you're not really bothered about how many people are at the gigs or whether you're on the radio or not. I mean, I, mean, I, I, I didn't try and write anything or record anything over the the solo albums that could get played in the radio. I mean, I, I said to Rico Discs that the first two solo albums came out on, I said to them, look, I'm really sorry, but there's nothing in this album that you'll get on the radio. And they said, oh, we could maybe try this, try that. I said, you will not get anything on this album on the radio. Don't even try. That's not the point of it. Um, so, yeah, I, mean, I, I certainly wasn't thinking about the future in that sense. I was just desperate to, to have people, no matter how few people, um, hear, hear what, what I was trying to say, basically. Yes, absolutely. I mean, just on that point, because you'd sort of mentioned it, that I think you mentioned it, you know, that, you know, pe- you know the audience or your fans, <laughs> your so-called fans, you know, they kind of have to get on with life. They sort of, they're not that interested in the next album, particularly they've got other commitments. But then 10, 15 years later, people start to kind of really appreciate you. And I realise you're on the same, not only are you doing this festival with um, the Turing Breaks, you're on the same record label as them. Do you find that there, there's that sort of 50, 60 something audience who are suddenly going, hi guys, we're, we're back. You know, we, we were a bit busy. We had our own lives to get on with. And now we kind of appreciate you more than ever because you know, frankly, trying to work out what's what's kind of happening in the charts. So I just wondered if you feel like more appreciation, not just for your old stuff, but actually the new album as well has, has something that you've discovered. Yeah, I mean, we've been surprised. Having done the sort of Nostalgia Fest revival tours in 2014, 2018, um, we've been surprised by how receptive the audience is, the live audience is to the new songs. Because we've not sold that many records, but people have obviously check stuff out on I mean I suppose that's to do with streaming you know so you can't you can't really judge uh, the the awareness of your new material by record sales uh, because people can just go and access it from, from virtually nothing online so that's been that's actually been quite nice because there's been a recognition factor for the new songs that wouldn't have been there if we you know having sold 10,000 records yes. or whatever we only get many records or so um, so that's been great that's that's because that's a new thing for us, because we haven't put new material since 2002 when streaming services didn't exist. Um, the, I mean, when we toured in 2014, it was a kind of collective, um, nostalgic in a nice way, kind of, oh, weren't the 90s fun? With, and, you know, these people were bringing their kids along to the shows, their kids were 15 or, you know, 20 or whatever. So that was really nice. Yes. So... Um, yeah, I mean, I, the more we get into doing more Delamitri shows, you you want to leave that nostalgic thing behind because you can't really you can't sort of live in aspect forever. Uh, I mean, obviously you're, you're beholden to your past if you've been successful in some way, but also you can't just be yoked to that. You've got to have some freedom to to say, look, this is what we're doing now, and getting that balance right is uh, is the key to it. I think. Yes. Did you feel a bit of a is that the occasion you had where a bit of an imposter syndrome thing? Was I really an artist artist or was it just kind of that moment? But now, because of the decades and you're doing albums and tours and people are seeing you, you do sort of feel like, actually, I, I'm, I'm not just faking it to making it. I'm, I'm sort of, the, you know, I'm a genuine, yes, this is my thing until I'm retiring. Well, possibly not retire as an artist. But, um, yeah, I just wonder if it feels a little bit different now. Um, yeah, I suppose it does. I mean, I mean, partly because 
you know, somebody wrote a book about all this, and we've a, a lot of the interviews that we do like this are about the past because the the past is something to talk about. So we, that, from this perspective, in in our late fifties, we think, well, you know, that, that's a, a modest achievement to be proud of. We didn't think that at the time. At the time, we, at the time, we were like, why are we not more successful? <laughs> we couldn't understand why we weren't more successful. I mean, not that we wanted to be more successful. We just thought it was a bit weird. We were getting so much radio play, but, but you know, we weren't, we weren't bigger. And then we realised it was probably because we were ugly bastards <laughs> and, and wore the worst clothes ever. Um, so you got look like every pop singer or performer will tell you. You go through periods where you know you know you're absolutely worthless. And then in order to get on a stage, there, there has to be an ego backing up, going, "No, we're really good at this." So I think you're always one thing or the other, you know. Yes. Um, and that's and also you're only as confident as the last gig you did. So if the last gig you did, you played well and you went went down well, then you're on a high. The last gig you did was a struggle, then you're on a low. It's just that's just the way it goes. Yes, this is true. That happened to Pasari with Motorhead when they were started touring and the album hadn't been properly released or hadn't been released and they were playing new material and no one knew it and they were thinking, oh my God, the struggles, the pain, the dynamics within the band. So I guess, yeah, it's a bit like football, isn't it, really? You you know, the confidence is everything. Yeah, if you do, you know, if you do a bad tour where either the band aren't playing well or um, the audience just aren't feeling it or something it's it's just grim or, or or if you do it too with it's just lots of empty seats that that's just grim it's, nobody wants to be looking at an empty an empty half empty room you know no <laughs> that's true i mean just lastly if you could whisper something to your 16 year old self starting out is there any main little or main thing but you know thing that you would have just said god i would have thought about that or i'd kept my eye on that or i would have done that mm. Yeah, that's that's always a tricky thing. Um, I would I'd have probably I would tell myself at the age of sixteen to be less neurotic and don't and not to worry about um, a lack of commitment from those around me because there are there are other people out there that that will be committed to making music. I mean, I think that the most common frustration for people who are musically ambitious. Is that you? Is you often start out with people who are just hobbyists that, that don't really want to do it forever, whereas you know people like me and Ian really wanted to do this forever because we, it just seems like the greatest job in the world to be mm. playing guitar and singing songs to people. That seems we don't really want to do anything else. But when you start out at school, the people around you have got they've got other ideas. You know they want to get married and have kids. They want to they want to have careers in banking. And what? <laughs> <laughs> what? Are you are you insane? Um, so I would say to my my sixteen year old self, don't worry, don't worry about them. There are people out there that will be as committed as you are to the dream. You know? Yes, you just got to get in the van, haven't you? Absolutely, get in the van. Well, look, I, I this has been fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much for this, and my um, really appreciate it. And I think you've got another sure, interview, haven't you? But yes, take care, and um, yes, loving the new album as as, uh, as one do. But anyway, look, take care, and I'll. Yes, I'll say goodbye. All right, cheers, David. Bye-bye. Bye, bye. There you go. That's how you say goodbye. I know, I'm so good at it. Anyway, a massive thank you to Justin Curry from Delamitri. And as I said, they've got a brilliant new album out, Fatal Mistakes. Check it out. Also dates in Europe and also Australia. Early part of next year.
So if you're listening in Australia, go and buy a ticket and see them. Buy some merchandise. That's the main thing, isn't it? And just enjoy yourself. Anyway, look, this has been the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. I know, original. Also, all these interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.